Hi, I'm Will Hannafin, and welcome to episode one of Sure It Was Better in the 1980s. Join me as we listen to long-lost tapes from the RT archives about a decade that has so many present-day parallels, like the American president, Ronald Reagan at the time, who had problems with reality. The White House, of course, has an old screen hero currently in residence, and according to a Californian political scientist, there's strong evidence to suggest that he's also living more in the fantasy world of the screen than in the world of reality. Shane Ross had difficulty getting his story straight. Shane Ross, what, what, what do you... How far back does, does memory go that you're aware of? I've always uh, boasted that, I, that my earliest memory was being able to read at the age of two. And this is the little Br'er Rabbit uh, story. And I told this story in front of my mother recently and she said this absolute nonsense that, that, that I was about 12 when this, when this happened. <laughs> <laughs> we really liked our bacon. Tipperary people hate salty bacon. Hey, you don't have to be from Tipperary to hate salty bacon. It's about time us dubs had a share of the action. And budgie competitions were taken very seriously. How do you judge fitness? Uh, a budgie, well, tight feathered, nice head, and a bird that can really stand and show itself off and looks the part. In other words, a real showman. Join me on the couch with actor and national treasure Pauline McLean, writer Jules Call, and complete Ashling's author Emer McLeisett as they figure out whether it was better or whether it was worse in the 1980s. I'll also track down some people featured in these 1980s clips to reflect on their lives. The email address is sure at rte.ie or contact me on Twitter at Will Hannafin. First up tonight, we hear the late US political scientist Michael Rogan speaking to Cahill McQuilla on Morning Ireland in January 1986. He's concerned that the then US President Ronald Reagan, who was 74 at the time and halfway through his second term, was mixing up reality with the movies. Where do we find such men? And when he actually used that about the D-Day dead, he was using it as if he just thought of it himself. But when he first used it, he, he used it by quoting an admiral in the Bridges of Tokori. And for the first time he used it, he knew it was from a movie. In his book, The Bridges of Tokori, novelist James Michener writes movingly of the heroes who fought in the Korean conflict. In the book's final scene, an admiral stands on the darkened bridge of his carrier waiting for pilots he knows will never return from their mission. And as he waits, he asks in the silent darkness, where did we get such men? The second time he used it, he quoted an admiral as if it was a living admiral. And by the third time he used it, he was he had become the person who uh, invented the line. And I just think he gets confused. I think he gets reality wrong, but he gets the movies right on the whole, although there are examples where he does. And on the whole, he remembers the movie accurately and then confuses it with the reality. He's much less secure in the world of reality where you often get things wrong. No mention of dropping atomic bombs into hurricanes, though. Now it's time for Before They Were Famous. This week, it's Senator Shane Ross, featured on Liveline in October 1987, presented by Marion Finucane. He's talking about his earliest memories. Shane Ross, how far back does, does memory go that you're aware of? I've always... Uh boasted that, I, that my earliest memory was being able to read at the age of two. And this is the little Br'er Rabbit uh, story. And I told this story in front of my mother recently and she said this absolute nonsense that, 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 that I was about 12 when this, when this happened. <laughs> uh, but it had always been, it had always been my, my feeling yeah, that's my earliest, early, earliest memory. My, life, my early life seemed to revolve around animals and I think my, my earliest memories are of ducks and dogs and cats and rabbits and horses and things like that. Actually. You were um, reared in Enniskerry. Was it on a farm? No, not really. I was, I was actually, I moved to Enniskerry when I was quite young, but I was in a similar type environment before that, which was, you know, a house with about 10 acres, that, that sort of situation, mm. uh, which, you know, there were cows and, and sheep around the house. Yes, that sort, that sort of environment, in fact. 
right. Yes, uh, I remember. I remember quite well keeping ducks and absolutely adoring them, and 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 living in an absolutely idyllic situation and being young and innocent. I should think I was about four at the time. And uh, you know, we called them Georgie, Porgie, Pudding and Pie, and we obviously devoted them. And then one awful day, a duck arrived on the lunch plate, and I think I was totally disillusioned with life after that. <laughs> and later on, he's asked about his views about corporal punishment during his school days. Was there much caning or corporal punishment in your school, Shane? Oh, well, <laughs> this is quite quite strange. Uh, there was a certain amount, yes. Personally, because one of the great benefits which I had was because I suffered from... from I, I was ill for a year and a half, I wasn't allowed to be... Some, one of the things, one of the things I wasn't... I wasn't allowed to play rugby, I wasn't allowed to do gym, but I also wasn't allowed to be caned or to be slapped in any way or physically abused by any teachers, which <laughs> I suppose was a great benefit. But in fact, because everybody else was being... Uh, was, was from time to time for minor offences having some sort of corporal punishment inflicted upon it. I, became, I started to get feeling very left out. <laughs> and one of the questions I'd asked when I'd go home every, every term was, was to my mother and father was, can I, can I, be, can I be beaten next, next term, please? Because <laughs> I haven't been beaten yet. And I never was as a result. I was never allowed to be, actually, no. I so I missed it. The it was a terrible deprivation. I presume the other boys resented it, though. I think they probably did a bit. I, d I mean, I didn't suffer terribly from it. Because, because I'd much rather, it, as a result, when I did commit any crimes of any sort, I was meant to learn all this you know, poetry, which would take me six or seven hours to learn. And I, I genuinely would much prefer to have got three or four whacks across the backside and it all be over with, in fact. And I did make requests that I could possibly be beaten. It never, it never, came, to, it never came to pass, I'm afraid. Duh. Let's give Pauline, Jules and Emer something they can get their teeth into. A confused teenager from 1980 who's fallen for an older man. This is from the Dear Frankie Agony Ant programme in 1980 with Frankie Byrne. This is Frankie Byrne with another edition of Woman's Page, a programme for or maybe about you. Her programme dispensed no-nonsense romantic advice for over two decades, from 1963 to 1984. Now the problem I'll be discussing today may not be yours, but they could be someday. At all events, Woman's Page draws its material from the lives and events of real people. And it comes to you now with the compliments of Jacobs, the biscuit makers. Well, Christmas is almost here again, and I suppose, like myself, you're getting together the shopping list to stock in for the festive season. Well, top of the list will be biscuits. Sometimes it's a problem to satisfy everybody's taste in biscuits. A packet of this, a packet of that. Well, Jacobs have come to the rescue once again with the big three-pound tin of USA Assorted, a real treasure chest of Irish family favourites. Now, this week, it's a fine girl looking for a bachelor in his 40s. In fact, he's there, but true to form, he's dragging his heels. Frankie, I'm 19 years old, and I'm in love with a beautiful man of 40. This is really love, Frankie. I just know it. He's got a good business, and I know I'd be really comfortably off financially if we marry. And I want to get married very much. My problem is that he's never asked me out. I know he's interested in me because he's made inquiries from my friends about me. Frankie, how can I get him to ask me out? My parents don't think I should be after him. And they say that after my good education in a boarding school, 
I shall be looking around and meeting boys from nice social sets. But I know that I will never love anyone else. I just think about them all the time. Please help me. I have this feeling that you really want me to tell you that you're right. And I can't honestly say that I think you are. But I can only try to take a practical view of a situation like this one. So let me be practical. I'd like to know why you followed your declaration. This is love. I just know it. With... He has a good business and I'd be comfortably off financially if we marry. And I want to, very much. Now, it's very unusual for a 19-year-old to look at love in such a fashion. And I'd like to know how much your emotions are influenced by this man's good business. If it's very important to you, then you may be a very realistic girl. And just the right girl for such a solid businessman, no matter what age he is. On the other hand, however, the nature of the mature bachelor has to be considered. And personally, I don't think he'd be particularly flattered by such cool attachment. He might expect this from someone his own age. From you, I believe he'd expect a warmer reaction. Now, what concerns me most is your years at boarding school. I know only too well, from personal experience, the false sense of awareness and self-possession. Those instructive talks from the educationalists, the holiday encounters with boys and the endless analysis of their behaviour, from which one emerges well-informed, self-confident and soaking wet behind the ears. Now, it's not the best preparation for a face-to-face -face with a 40-year-old bachelor as your first experience. Are you by any chance basing your hopes and dreams on the fact that this man shows his interest in you by making inquiries from your friends about you? Well, if you are, then let me tell you this. When you're 10 years out of school, and less sublimely knowledgeable about men than you are now, you'll know that the Irish bachelor is always inquiring about girls. That's how he stays a bachelor. But the man who's hell-bent on marriage makes his own inquiries, and that way there's a fair chance. But beware of the fellow who sends word, because you'll never get close enough to see the whites of his eyes. Now, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I can't avoid the feeling that this laddo has been making inquiries like that about a generation of girls. Of course, as the old song says, when he fancies he's past love, it is then he meets his last love. And he loves her as he's never loved before. So my advice to you would be, don't waste too much more time. And you know your parents are right. You should be mixing around with boys of your own age and having fun. Well, what do Pauline, Jules and Emer think of Frankie's advice? Let's have a listen. Wow. Well, that's it's, some straight talk in it's there. It's robust, isn't it? <laughs> robust, good, honest, goodness advice. What a great crock of common sense. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God, bring back Frankie. Do you She's know, amazing. I love her voice. Lots of um, people don't come out well of, out of it, though, do they? Mm. The Irish Bachelor. Well, <laughs> he the comes lado. with a set the of lado. problems. The yeah. And women of his own age. Would be a lot cooler, apparently. Not warm, according to Frankie. I, it's it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Like I, um, in the eighties, used to listen to Frankie um, Byrne, uh, but I don't remember that the, the advice was this um, tough. Yeah, to be yeah, honest, was she, was she always so harsh? The poor nineteen-year-old and accusing her of being a money grabber. Yes. Yes, yes, gold digger, that word had been around back then. That's exactly what she would have used it, wouldn't she? Yeah, yeah. And she said, yeah, she was in his business. Uh, yeah, 
Um, which apparently she shouldn't have been. Well, why, why not, why though? Not? I, don't, I, I don't get it. I, I thought she, it's mature of a 19-year-old mm. to think of it, isn't it? Yeah. What would you know of love? <sighs> I, I, want, oh. I wish we knew more about the background. She, she said, why don't your parents want you around with this man? <gasps> yes. She implied he wasn't from a good, nice social set, but yeah. he has the money. Yes. Well, yeah, what kind of business is he in, yeah. if that's the case? I feel like and Frankie has read between the lines, and yeah. she's like, mm. no, move on, girly. Yeah, what kind of uncouthness would he be up to that he wasn't from a nice social set. I also really enjoyed the biscuits ad oh, at the top it. of the piece. It was very reminiscent of the podcasts of 2019, which <laughs> always start with an ad for mattresses or something. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was from an era though, as I recall myself, where um, a lot of programmes were sponsored. You know, the whole half an hour or whatever would be sponsored by say, you know, a biscuit manufacturer or whatever. But it was pretty the way she read you know, as if it was part of her own advice. Yeah, um, I thought it you know, was the, advice. Yeah, I was like, is she well, coming up to Christmas, this is what you need. And, and good she used the word advice. Please, like, please yeah. ensure that yeah. it's Jacobs that you choose. So it doesn't You're sound like an ad. Yeah. Sure, it doesn't. You know, it's um, it was in a full a endorsement from her going, Now, this is what yeah. you need to do for Christmas. Put this on your shopping list and the pink wafers. Melt, melt in the mouth, in the mouth. wafers all yeah. oh, the magic of the 80s she um, wasn't above I seem to recall as well uh, the fact that because she had a devotion to Frank Sinatra she would sometimes use the lyrics of his songs uh, to prove no, she her didn't. good advice now I don't know if she quoted one there but you know when he meets his last love uh, last oh, she, love then yeah. he's met his true love I don't know that that's a Frank Sinatra song but she wouldn't be above using really? a Sinatra song yeah she played a lot of because it'd be, there'd be music as well as advice so she'd play um, usually Sinatra singing about my love you know and is her um, reaction here is that typical of Frankie because I thought it quite stern and straight talking which is great and do you know what for you don't really hear advice like that these days sure you don't yeah. that's kind of nice isn't it yeah, straight talking is, is a good straight um, talking down the I line I am imagining this it. poor girl crying into her pillow though. Mm. <laughs> while you're, the, the lado is off giving the glad eye to every woman of his own age <laughs> True. around the town but everybody was so things. much more resilient back then though weren't they compared to now now we have to go so softly now and see it from all the angles with the advice and everything and, and people oh, are like very Frankie. dead set in what they, you know I need to be married I need yes. this to happen I need this to happen and at 19 I was know I just got so young oh my word She's just out of secondary school. By the way, the song that Frankie Byrne mentioned wasn't by Frank Sinatra. It was called A Bachelor Gay, sung by Australian baritone Peter Dawson. Here's a little bit. At 35, you'll find him flirting sadly with two or three or more. When he fancies his past love, it is when he meets his love. And he loves her as he's never loved before. Now for something completely different musically. It's the Irish election songs of the early 1980s. First up is Charlie's Song, recorded by Tipperary group The Morrissey's. It was Fianna Fáil's effort for the 1981 general election campaign and very much a tribute to leader Charles Haughey. Hail the leader, hail the Charlie's song will march along. We'll ride. 
Next up, we have Fine Gael's song, imaginatively called Fine Gael, Fine Gael. The 1981 election was a head-to-head between Gareth Fitzgerald of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil's Charles Haughey. Fine Gael, Fine Finally, another Fianna Fáil song entitled We'll Be There. This was actually created for the European elections during the last days of Jack Lynch's time in charge, sung by his nephew, Carl Dunn, who was our 1979 Eurovision contestant with Happy Man. Another Monday morning See the children off to school Preparing for a changing world tomorrow But who will build their future While learning from our past Learning from the sweetness and the sorrow Who will work to build the country they'll be living in Who will fight to make it right, no thought of giving in We've been there, we've been needed We have fallen, we've succeeded We'll be there in the future as we were lighters in the air isn't it <laughs> it's just I tell you what the Eurovision one if we put that in next year we'd win Eurovision yes. again like we used to maybe not an election but we would certainly win Eurovision so Eurovision mm-hmm. and what then a journey those three songs took us on yes. the, first, the first one was very you know vote for Charlie yeah. and then it went football anthem yeah Fine Gael Gareth Fitzgerald and then it went Eurovision yeah but they're all the key things that really get people like it's yeah. actually quite clever isn't it imagine them if yeah. we had anthems like that these but days. But they used to d- d- play them as well, though, out of loudspeakers, you know, as yeah. going cars, around the town. Yeah, yeah. No, they did. did ah, they? yeah, yeah. To, to down Hook the country the they did in. where I grew up. Yeah, definitely. Wow. There's a very strong smell of parody off all of it. Yeah. Yes. I mean, <laughs> if, if someone turned around now and said, oh, no, that's a parody song someone wrote last yeah. year, I'd be like, yes, of course, of course, they're parody songs. But no, people really went for these. I can't believe how the simple use of a 
banjo can make something sound like such a rebel song. Yes. You know, um, you don't get a lot of banjo these days in in arrangements, do you? No. You know? And the lyrics are gas as well. Hail the leader. Hail the man. <laughs> well, hail him. Oh, my. Yes. <laughs> he, he was quite the emperor, though. Well, so, true. you know, I... I uh, Imagine <laughs> how much uh, Charlie Hawhey's campaign team were sick of hearing Arise and Follow Charlie oh, after about four days, I'd say, going around shaking hands and kissing babies. It seems so that they kind of went more for the whole feel of, of the song for the emperor, didn't they? Whereas Fine Gael, it, theirs was loaded with information. <laughs> <laughs> about, you know, what your future would be like for your children in Ireland. Garrett, the man you know, the man you uh, know. what he was going to do. You know, like all the all the election promises seem to be there in the lyrics, whereas with um, the Fianna Fáil one, it was just basically the, come on now, lads, <laughs> get out and vote. Round them we'll, up there now. We'll decide <laughs> later what we're up to, what <laughs> the Emperor says we'll do. The Garrett Fitzgerald Fianna Gael one was a banger. I did that again. Yeah, that yeah, was quite really the catchy. And then, of course, we had uh, Cahill Dunn, nephew of Jack Lynch, singing... The, uh, the another Fianna Fáil one which sounded very Eurovision very Eurovision yeah. that was Lighters in the Air stuff that was fantastic yeah I wonder why they softened up um, you mm. know between A Rise and Follow Charlie and but, but if, if election campaigns if they had music now these days and catchy songs to go with them what would they be like would they be rapping trying to get all their campaign slogans and everything into a rap I don't know if anyone's familiar with um, TD Alan Kelly a Labour, Labour man had a rap that came out about him in the late 2000s when I think he was going for MEP and I actually went looking for it on the internet recently and it has disappeared from from all internet history it has disappeared but if anyone wants to dig it up it's well worth listening to I wonder why um, you know when you think of Kelly you're thinking what are the rhymes with Kelly Kelly, Telly, Smelly it's not going to work is it? I think you just Um, kind of went vote Alan Kelly (laughs) vote Alan Kelly TD with the belly I don't know we still have football songs and you know when the world Cup is on mm. and, and yeah. t- international it- teams have their own songs. Bring back the oh, election yeah. song. Varadkar, very hard to rhyme mm. with. Yeah. Well, what happened at the end of the very musical 1981 general election? The song worked out better for Fine Gael. They formed a minority government with Labour in 1981, led by Gareth Fitzgerald. And Fianna Fáil lost six seats, with the anti-H-block candidates winning two dull seats. As I said earlier, I'm tracking down the people from my clips over the course of the series. Cahill Dunn, who sang the song We'll Be There for Fianna Fáil, ended up emigrating to America in 1982. He's now 64 and still a performer. I spoke to him from his home in Pittsburgh. Was he angry about having to leave Ireland? Uh, I felt like every other person that left, uh, left down by the country, um, you know. But there's so many different circumstances to, to one's life. I mean, one's own choices. If had I been perhaps a smarter businessman, I was more I was into the music like most musicians are. Um, I might have survived Ireland. I don't know, but um, just it's you don't look back. You know, you just keep going. That was tough. You know, to go from a certain level in Ireland to nothing over here, playing in 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 sort of pubs and things. But slowly, I got out of the pubs and got into sort of more concerty type situations and um, I'm now I play now on my own luckily Will I've always had I was always a piano player and I was able to accompany myself um, all around the country and that was huge I never had to depend on anybody you know to accompany me Um, and I use backing tracks now that I have from my own records and um, I do a little bit of everything really Uh, Irish Broadway country 
Do you think it was better or worse in the 1980s or now? Obviously, I think it's better. Um, my nieces and nephews don't have to emigrate like I did. You don't have to be in America or anywhere else to get to live in a fantastic house in Ireland. So that was marvellous. It lifted every boat. The boom I'm talking about that came after I left. I know the housing shortage is critical and the medical situation isn't very good. But overall, um, I think Ireland is a far better place, in a far better place than I, than I left it. To try and help Ireland a little bit, I, I started bringing tours back to Ireland. Um, you know, a busload of us would, I'd tell them about it and we'd book a few hotels. And it started off small, like maybe 25 people a year in a bus. But now, as a, as a little give back to Ireland, you know, we stayed in hotels for a few nights and food and pubs and the gifts they'd buy, I thought would help. But now we have um, two sold out tours every year. We have 80 people in June and 80 in September. And I just recently added up the amount of money and they drop about a half a million uh, every year into Ireland, into hotels. And, and the other thing is that the people that come with me, a lot of them have traveled before and sophisticated. Some of them have never been out of our America before. But the one big thing I'm so proud of is they say, yes, it's a gorgeous country, uh, but the people were what made what made it special for them. The Irish kid, Mila Folta, is as alive today as it ever was. Your uncle, Jack Lynch, was Taoiseach. Did you know him well? What sort of a man was he? I didn't know him well. Uh, I wish I'd known him better. Um, interestingly, you were saying, was I angry about uh, having to leave? One of the things, in fairness to Jack Lynch, was uh, he told my mother and all his other brothers and sisters, never, ever ask me for a favour. I will say no. And uh, he was known as Honest Jack, and he bought his house in Dublin and he died from that one house in Ireland. He was, you know, he was a straight guy. But I I liked him. Uh, I wish I'd known him better. I wish I had sort of sought him out further for sort of social friendships. But he was he was Jack Lynch and I was sort of Carl Dunnan. <laughs> he, he was busy. I, I The few times that I met him, for example, one time we were down in Kinsale with the tour in Ireland and Jimmy Crowley sang a few songs, the one and only Jimmy, as you know, and uh, Jack was there and we had a great crack. But my wife, Kathleen, I just had a, just got married to her and I introduced her to Jack and we were chatting away. And every time um, that the context sort of got a bit more Irish than uh, generic sort of stuff, he would stop and say, well, Kathleen, now this is exactly, this is what we mean here. And this, he, he was very, very courteous and he had great empathy. And uh, that's a word that's missing in these word, in the, this world a lot right now, as you know. You're still a happy man then, Cahill. Yes, um, uh, very, very, um, very content. Um, still playing away. I love it. Uh, I enjoy the fact that people enjoy it and still pushing myself to practice. I practice three or four hours a day on the piano or, you know, whether I'm trying to write a new song or whatever. Um, and uh, glad that I, proud, I suppose, that I never really had, uh, as, as mum says, a real job.
That was Happy Man, Ireland's 1979 Eurovision entry sung by Cahill Dunn. The only Twitter to be heard of in Ireland in the 1980s was from the All-Ireland Budgerigar Championships, which were held here for the first time in 1985. Over the weekend, the first ever All-Ireland Budgerigar Championships were held in Dublin. Morning Ireland went to take a look at the birds and to talk to some of those involved in organising the championships, including Ivan Dunlop from Belfast. Being the first time, it was a hard start, but from what we have received as far as the entries are concerned... We are reasonably pleased, but uh, we shall have to see possibly this show which we have started. We hope to hold alternatively Northern Ireland, South of Ireland alternatively, and we'll see what can happen next year when possibly it has been held somewhere in the region of Belfast. Ivan Dunlop, one of the two show organisers in the first All-Ireland Budgerigar Championships. With me now is Donald Lake, who's come all the way over from England to judge in the championships. Donald, what do you look for in judging championships like this? Well, of course, uh, as normal, there's always a standard which is laid down by the Budget Society, and we try as best as we possibly can to judge to the standard. Um, Fitness, of course, is very important here, and we're looking for a nice bird. How do you judge good. fitness in a budgie? Uh, a budgie, well, tight feathered, nice head, all good sized spots, six nice good sized spots, and, and a bird that can really stand and show itself off and looks the part. In other words, a real showman. And these birds are there, and we've got one or two of them here today, there's no question about it. What are the other features? Well, it, colour is, is important, but it's, it's mainly colour, depth, width of head, depth of mass, which we term depth of mass, and spot, and, we're, and that's what we're aiming for. Tell us about this bird and how you would have judged him. Well, and this one is uh, um, a young bird, uh, bred this year, uh, and as you can see, although the listeners can't turn and see, it's uh, uh, a little bit scatty in the cage, doesn't want to stand, it doesn't it want to show itself. But uh, yes, but uh, their idea is to stand on the perch and to show themselves off as actual showmen, which um, uh, the better uh, cock in that particular class did. And of course, has now gone on as now waiting the outcome of the uh, the breeder awards. But. Uh, you can see that it's not really in 100% condition at the moment. But, but when you talk about the Ming Showmen, they, it's almost as if, or do they know, that they are actually being displayed and that they oh, must yes. stand and show themselves off? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. It's surprising. Um, you'll, you'll have many birds in the showroom that will stand and show themselves off in the normal way. There'll also be those that won't turn on and show in the bird room, but put them in a show cage, which you see here before you today, um, then uh, indeed uh, they'll show themselves. They turn it on. They turn it on. It's incredible, <laughs> absolutely incredible. But uh, it's certainly turned on and worth seeing, you know. What about the standard at this first All Ireland Championship? I'm very pleased with that. Uh, I'm, I hope the organisers' point of view that uh, you know that there will be a great number of birds here next year. I hope this is something beginning of something that uh, is going to be a joint venture for a long while to come. Just like you, David, uh, the budgies are different inside the cage than out. Yeah, I notice you always manage to indulge your obsession with birds. <laughs> uh, now it's seven minutes to nine. Oh, my God. Oh, 
lovely plumage, the yellow pottergar. <laughs> a oh. tight feather. Doesn't that sound like something from a parody or something from a sketch show or something like that? The man came all the way from England. All the way from England. All the way from England to do the judging. And on the width of Budgie's heads. He had such, dis- he was so distinguished. I mean, immediately his English accent came on. It was mm. like, oh, this is a man who knows what he's talking about. Big time now, yeah. He's going to show the Budgie fanciers of Ireland. It's huge business though, um, bird breeding and budgies in particular. I mean, I know in things like pigeons and show pigeons and all this, sort of, but budgies, yeah. I mean. The what? fitness of budgies, <laughs> that's astounding. Nice size spots and good width of head. Yeah. You want hilarious. to call your budgie spot, don't you? For it was yeah, almost, like, spot. almost like Frankie Byrne describing a good bachelor, like he has a good width of head and a nice size spot. Yeah. <laughs> I love the, and the poor little baby birdie, of course he didn't want to stand and show I himself know, off. Show himself he hadn't off. even reached puberty. <laughs> he was only a year old, for I'm, goodness I'm sake. I'm glad the interviewer asked the question, which was on my mind, does a budgie know when it's on show? And of course, our man from England said, of course, of course. <laughs> but you know knows. what? I'm inclined to believe him. Yeah, well, I, I think I might. I, I think when, when budgies do their, well, their strut and their stuff or any bird that oh, wants yeah. attention, they they, they do a lot of that here. actually, yeah. yeah. I would love Mostly to the men birds, I, I Little believe. budgie gymnastics and things. Like, you know, know, maybe they're doing tricks and everything. There might be, oh, yeah. 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 Can you imagine if uh, yeah, it could stand on one hand and then just kind of like <laughs> yeah, bop just his do head little, a bit. yeah, just mm. you know, strike little poses with the yeah. other. Oh, please! I'd love to. Love that was nineteen eighty-five, the first All Ireland Budgie Championships. I'd love to know if it's still going. Oh yes, oh, I'd love to know. They do have big competitions all over Ireland. Yeah, I narrated a pet show or uh, a pet program once for RTE indeed mm-hmm. and yeah it's huge bird fanciers yeah um, and budgies in particular yeah are huge uh, breeding them oh yeah <laughs> I know it's fantastic what a brilliant though and you'd hope quite gentle pastime you don't judge me as if you did baby I judge you too no you don't judge me cause you see it from the same point of view Cause I got issues, but you got them too So give them all to me and I'll get mine to you Bask in the glory of all our problems Cause we got the kind of love it takes to solve Yeah, I got issues The 1980s was also a decade of innovation. Did you know the mobile phone, HDTV, Prozac were just some of the 80s inventions? Here's a news item from RT Radio in 1981 featuring Adrian Keevney who wanted to sell electric cars in Ireland. Finally this evening, a welcome development for those who find petrol bills these days are just too hard to stomach. It's an electric car which has gone on the market here and when it runs out of juice, you simply plug it in at home like the electric kettle. Carolyn Erskine went for a spin in one with Adrian Keevney of Commuter Vehicles. Well, first of all, uh, there is non-reliance on petrol. You simply plug this car into your domestic socket at home and uh, you can achieve, uh, after a six-hour charge, 40 miles of motoring. The cost uh, in in relation to petrol is approximately 50p, uh, whereas petrol costs £2.30 a gallon, and this will, in fact, give you the equivalent of 177 miles per gallon. So it's cheaper to run, but how fast does it go? Uh, Well, it'll travel at 40 miles per hour, um, which is more than uh, enough to cope with city traffic, which uh, basically is between, well, 25, 35 miles per hour. And do you literally just plug it into an ordinary domestic plug? 
Yes, you're supplied with uh, a lead and socket and you simply plug it in the side of this car, plug it into your domestic socket at home and uh, it automatically switches itself off when it has achieved a full charge. I understand you intend to manufacture these cars in Ireland. Uh, will that be providing any jobs? Uh, it will indeed. Uh, it will provide approximately 30 jobs, we would reckon. Uh, the main advantage, in fact, uh, manufacturing here is the, that uh, we reckon about 70% of the materials are available. And um, because there is no uh, gears, no clutches, no water system, no tuning problems as you'd have with a normal car, manufacture would be quite, quite easy. So will maintenance costs be lower than the average motor car? Uh, indeed they would. In fact, uh, all the maintenance that has to be carried out by the owner would be simply to top up these batteries, uh, perhaps once a fortnight, but to check them once a week. It's a very, very simple job. 15 minutes a week is uh, all the service that's required. An added benefit, according to Mr Keevney, is a 25% cut in insurance costs. All you have to do is find £5,900 to buy one. Look, I'm astonished still about the whole electric car thing and I'm thinking 40 years ago hearing that, is that the equivalent to now hearing about a flying car? I mean, they didn't seem too blown away by the idea of it. And it also gives an insight into, I'm guessing, how little people were driving in distance wise. True. Compared to today because they were saying you'll, a six hour charge will give you 40 miles. I mean, t- that's nothing. Yeah, you're not mm-hmm. To today's far. commuter, that's, mm-hmm. well, that's useless to me. Um, but back then it was obviously, you know, far enough to be going and he said you'll need to top it up every few weeks. Yeah, every two yeah. two weeks. of like, And like little would they think that we'd have PowerPoints at every single garage and everything now. It's I'm, amazing. I'm guessing £5,000 though was... Oh, that's well, a, a bit, six, yeah, a bit 5, steep in 1981. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any memory of anything like this of electric cars being noted? Because I, Absolutely my memory not. of electric cars is only in, within the last ten yeah, years. Yeah, recent. Yeah, yeah. very and recent. No mention of environment there at all. I don't think yes. it was all about cost saving. Yeah. Um, which kind of makes sense, I suppose, in the early eighties in Ireland. But uh, yeah, no environmental concerns at all, which is obviously what electric cars are geared towards these yeah. days. Yeah, but it'd take you a long time to make back your money, I guess, on the uh, the fifty p. You know, like yeah. that it was going to yeah. take you to charge up the. Or could you get the one on the hire purchase? Or, yeah, and give it back when you got the. Do you remember you used to do that with all the the new things? Yeah, you if you got it, you know you don't need go higher purchase on it because there'd be an, a newer, better one mm. within months. Yeah, you know. So um, so I wonder, did anybody? Has anybody got one of I the mean, old? Did they ever the old ones? ones? Yeah. Did they ever build the factory in Ireland employing the third people? I don't people. seem to recall that they did. Yeah. Well, they were way ahead of their time anyway. They were. Yeah, Fair that's to them. very mm. applaudable, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I'm a bit impressed with that. I have yeah, no me memory too. of such um, forward thinking. Electric cars weren't the only innovation I found buried in the 1980s archive. Bottle banks are everywhere now and we recycle 86% of our glass. But here's the opening of the first bottle bank from October 13th, 1987. A major effort to improve our low rate of glass recycling in Ireland will be officially launched this afternoon as part of Environment Awareness Week. It involves the opening of a new glass recycling unit at Santry in Dublin, the capital's first. It will be run by Rehab, which is short for the Rehabilitation Institute. John Kogan is General Manager of the new project and I asked him how long he thought it would take the project to make a profit. We envisaged this 
recycling operation in Santry becoming commercial um, in about four to five years. It's going to take that long to build up the, the tonnage uh, to make it commercial for us. Bottled draft Guinness wasn't so successful. The designers even nicknamed the concept Daft Guinness after it failed. It was launched here in 1982. Charlie Bird and David Hanley explain. Now the news that pint drinkers throughout Ireland will soon be able to enjoy the luxury of a pint of draft Guinness in their own homes. The bottled draft Guinness, called BDG for short, has been carefully test marketed on the west coast of Ireland for some time. The best way to enjoy BDG is when it's been chilled for a few hours. But the real magic in the new brew is in the special syringe that Guinness have developed, which is sold with every pack. David Hanley asked the marketing director of Guinness, Paddy McKenna, how BDG worked. Well, this is an exact replication of draft, or current draft beer. Um, you take a bottle of the product, you pour it into a glass flat, you then insert uh, the creaming device that we have developed, uh, you suck some beer up into the creamer, and then you discharge it through a tiny hole in the creamer. And that gives the characteristic surge that you get when a, dra a pint of draft beer is being filled. And a ban on smoking on buses? Surely not. Here's what they thought in Belfast in 1982. Finally, smoke-free bus travel in Belfast. This morning, commuters in Belfast faced a new ban on smoking while travelling on the city's red buses. The ban was imposed by City Bus Limited, the company which operates local services. Drivers and conductors are also banned from smoking. Did the people of Belfast agree with the ban? I do. I do agree with it. Like, why should other people have to put up with smoke all around them if they don't That's smoke? Great, yeah. You know what I mean? My husband, my husband bad with his chest and lungs, you know, so it wouldn't do him any good. I agree with it, really, because I think I don't think it should be inflicted with other people's habits, especially smoking, because it can be very disturbing. And for the sake of a short bus journey, I think it's worth it. And you don't think the smokers have a have a, the right to have a drag the odd time? Well, for all the time they're on a bus, and it's such a confined space. It's more irritating, I think, for the people that don't smoke than it is for the ones that do. Finally, male contraception, being discussed on the Gayburn radio show in October 1986 with Scottish couple Jimmy and Gillian Bremner. We're still waiting. Up until now, it is women who've borne the brunt of contraceptive technology, and I suppose many men would reason that as it's women who have the babies, it should be women who are most concerned about whether or not they get pregnant. But not all men feel quite like that. We are joined now by Jimmy and Gillian Bremner from the BBC studio in Edinburgh. And Jimmy was one of the men who recently took part in a clinical test of a new contraceptive injection, this time for men. Uh, are you there, Jimmy? You are. Good morning. Good morning to you. What was involved in this contraceptive injection for you? Um, it meant going in once a month to have two injections over a period of three months. Um, and, and what about your general interest in, in sex? Um, was there any change in that, or, or, was, or indeed was that policed? My wife's smiling here. She says it didn't change in any way. <laughs> anyway, good, yes. Time for some divinely inspired advertising now from New York. And now to the United States, where they're using some unusual methods to recruit Catholic priests, as Eileen Magner has discovered. Thanks, Mrs. O'Brien. You know, I've never really been sorry that my son didn't come to work here in my pharmacy. One day he just told us he wanted to be a priest. His mother and I were concerned about not having grandchildren, I guess, and we wondered if he'd be too lonely. But we encouraged him to do what he wanted, and today he's a priest in the Catholic Church. 
That radio commercial is one of a number put out by an organisation of Catholic laity called Sarah International to try to persuade young Catholics to consider the priesthood. In fact, that ad is specifically directed at parents who, the church believes, are influencing their children against adopting the religious life. Sarah's executive director, John Donoghue, explains what the ads are trying to accomplish. It's just a 30-second reminder that the church is always looking for good men and women. Men and women sometimes are reluctant to accept the role of a religious leader. You might not be convinced that you're worthy of this very responsible job. You need somebody to say, think about it. So it's an extension of uh, the personal invitation is putting it occasionally, and I hope in pretty good taste, on radio and television. The situation is indeed serious. According to Sarah's figures, there are now 2,000 fewer priests in America than there were 20 years ago. By the year 2000, there could be only half as many as there are now. And it's not just an American phenomenon. Figures issued by the Vatican on Tuesday showed that throughout North America and Europe, the number of priests is dropping. Parents haven't been encouraging, they say, as much as they used to, and the, the reasons are fairly understandable, uh, no grandchildren. Some parents say that the priesthood could be a lonely life. So we have developed programs over the years to counter those legitimate questions. But even so, doesn't advertising seem a little crass and a bit commercial for recruiting people whose vocation must be anything but commercial? No, it's just adapting modern techniques to modern needs, according to Father Peter Finn, Director of Communications for the Archdiocese of New York. I don't think it's necessarily advertising. After all, Christ himself walked the shores of Galilee in uh, his age and used his communication, the, the spoken word, to say to, to fishermen and tax collectors and others, come follow me. And I think in a very real way, we are using it in our times, those modern gifts of creative thinking that are uh, God-inspired, I hope, and uh, believe, uh, to do the same thing. God, they really were masters of spin. Didn't Christ himself come down off the cross and do a few ads? He was. <laughs> Jesus was mad into advertising <laughs> back in the day. He was an influencer. Absolutely. This is very, very manipulative, isn't it? It's just like, let's get the parents on board and they'll, you know, force the kids into this. Was, Numbers course, are down, we need to no do something. No guarantee that they wouldn't have grandchildren, as yeah. we now know, mm-hmm. out of the priest. But, uh, yeah, no, when they were talking about the numbers there without giving the numbers away, <laughs> naughty RTE, it sounded like one of those mathematical puzzles, didn't it? If X amount less priests <laughs> have been here this year, by the year 2000, they'll be 50% less even again. What is X? <laughs> uh, you know, what is the amount? Fascinating. Yes. Well, we were filming the third series of Father Ted um, down the west of Ireland, the outdoor stuff, when we'd be coming home um, at nights back to the hotel we were staying in. There was this billboard campaign going on and it was from the Catholic Church and they were recruiting people to become priests. And what it would be, it'd be like this big billboard and there'd be a fairly ordinary looking guy, you know, in a tank top or whatever, <laughs> sitting on a desk and they'd say... A nice jumper. You know, yeah, <laughs> you know, say, this, this is Tom. He's a computer analyst. He's also a priest. <laughs> Why don't you join the priesthood? It was just remarkable. And we, we always thought that maybe it was no accident that it was mm-hmm. while we were um, making Father Ted. But yeah, so the advertising continues. Yeah. It does, because yeah. I have seen it like the odd time where I would go to a church for a funeral event and they have posters up of, yeah, cool kids. Yeah. And they're kind of in these sort of, well, it is almost 80s style. They're advertising that they still run. Mm-hmm. And these like, you know, clicking their fingers type of thing and going, hey, you could be as cool as me if you were a priest. <laughs> 
you probably need a job as well, though, you know, to fund being a priest these days, I think, you know. My there's abiding. no money anywhere. You know, this anymore. tapping in the collection basket goes around now and you can tap your card oh, as well. Oh, yeah, and it goes around several times. Mm. Well, one of my <laughs> abiding memories of the 80s, I, I grew up in the 80s, was that our local priest ran away with the housekeeper. So, <gasps> I mean, his position needed to be filled. You see? I, don't, I wonder, were they doing ads for Irish priests in the 80s? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these days, yes, but probably not. And we know that there were grandchildren enough. out of a few of those, so... The ad industry certainly had a Wild West feel about it in the 1980s and sometimes this led to trouble, like when Paris City decided to use Hitler to advertise its wares. We move on to an advertisement which has caused annoyance among members of the Jewish Representative Council. It appeared in this week's Dublin Evening Papers. The ad which Joe Briscoe, chairman of the council's Public Affairs Committee, objects to is for the Power City chain of electrical stores and it shows an Adolf Hitler lookalike staring sternly and pointing his finger at the reader beside the words it's war in heavy large size print and on prices in smaller lettering. Joe Briscoe, what was your reaction to this ad when you saw it first? All I can say at the moment that I think that it's in very poor taste and might I say that not just the Power City but also the papers that published it because, I mean, it's not that you can't just say that it was the people who advertised. And um, the reason I say that it's in poor taste, it's just 50 years after the end of the war. And it's not just Jews. I mean, Jews don't have a monopoly of being recipients of Hitler's uh, wickedness. Millions of non-Jews suffered and perished. How many uh, people in the Jewish com- community in Ireland um, would have lost relatives, grandparents You're um, looking at and cousins? Now. You're looking at one now. I mean, I, I thought, because my grandfather came here over 100 years ago, uh, and, I mean, I'm, I'm third generation born in Ireland, and I thought that, we, that my, my family had, had escaped, uh, you know, completely. And about three years ago, I was in Israel, and a cousin of mine is making a, 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 a family tree, and I discovered that I have lost 156 relatives, um, mainly uh, from uh, Lithuania, because that's where originally my grandfather came, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia. And are most Jews in that position where this ad would be personally offensive to oh, them because of relatives of Jews, that they had lost of, in Hitler's a lot of campaign Jews, against a lot, them? A lot of Jews with that. And, you know, it, it's a dreadful thing to, to suddenly realise that somebody who was a cousin or an aunt of my father's, as, as, as one, one, of the pe- one of the relatives was, uh, that close, that these people were just put into gas chambers or, or cattle trucks or worse. And, and and just 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 exterminated. So I mean, it is 50 years ago, but I mean, it's still within living memory. So I think it was an extreme bad taste. So you'd have no doubt that most Jews would want this ad uh, withdrawn immediately. Well, I, I I would I would I would I would accept that. I, I I think I think it was a very poor ad, and I think it was a mistake on the par- on the part of not just of Power City, but of the papers in accepting it. <laughs> Ooh, valid point that he made that it's not just the point of the fault of um, Power City that the papers who printed it. Yeah. How did that get How through? How did it get through so many, you know, yeah. OKs? Poor taste. It, uh, they they were saying, no, gobsmacking yeah. evenings and yeah. insult. Yes. Um, only four, 50 years after the war. Oh. Um, um, that I'm actually d- uh, gobsmacked oh, myself no, gobsmacked. now. Me I, too. I don't know what to you say. You do see it. some things these days it. and you're like, how did that make it off so many people's desks into print and into publication? Maybe not quite as offensive as using Hitler in a Power City ad, mm-hmm. but, you know, probably comparable in today's... Uh, I suppose it's that 
that um, idea, isn't it, that no subject should be taboo, you know, and censorship and all that. Uh, yeah, but there's also just plain wrong, yeah. isn't there? And you know, uh, it's again, I think anything wrong. can be joked about, but this is like an advertisement about their pricing and yeah. that they've got a sale on and going, who will we use to be the flagship person? Yeah. Oh, we throw Hitler in there and say war on prices. I, it's just. Who came up with that? I mean, even if you're doing it to be inflammatory, that's it's too far. It's too far. See the line? Uh, It's way back there. (laughs) Way Way back there. there. I think it's time for a real 1980s ad break, don't you? Put the kettle on. It's time for some Bovril. Tipperary people hate salty bacon. Hey, you don't have to be from Tipperary to hate salty bacon. It's about time us dubs had a share of the action. You have. Now it's in Dublin. Tipperary bacon from Ross Cray. Look for it, taste it. Tender, low-salt rashes perfectly cured without added flavourings. Tipperary bacon from Ross Cray. The natural taste of low-salt bacon. Great. Just what we've been waiting for. They used to come in cold and hungry and looking for Bovril. I joined them in a cup. Well, beefy goodness. Got to be better than a lot of the stuff kids take these days. I'd forgotten how good it was. Nice for a change, you know. Then I discovered it only had 20 calories per cup. (laughs) No wonder I feel in such good shape. If you're going to boil the kettle, boil it up for Bovril, the healthier choice. Welcome back. And by the way, if you have any memories about any of the clips on the show, the email address is sure at rte.ie or find me on Twitter at Will Hannafin. I'd love to hear your stories from the time. It's time now to ask Pauline McGlynn Jules Call and Emer McLeisett about tonight's crop of clips and for them to decide if it was better or if it was worse back in the 1980s. Off you go. Looking back on the 80s now, there's lots in this now that I'd like to bring back. Bring back yeah. Frankie and her straight oh, talk. Absolutely. Loving Frankie. Yes. Mm-hmm. I the love the election songs. songs. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's no, there's no colour anymore mm. to an election, is there? I think we could definitely bring them back. I think the problem is, you know, in terms of balance and bias and broadcasting them on radio stations, oh, you might true. get into a bit of trouble. But, but still, even on the streets, you know, even through a megaphone. Let's you get people into a Morris Minor and blare them out on the Lovely. Budgie competition. Budgies. I, I still can't yes. believe that's real. I was just yeah. I'd go to one, to be quite honest. <laughs> oh, well, they'd be very pretty to look at, even if you didn't know about, you know, the cap that they should have on the spot and the, the fitness. The width yeah. of head. You could make that, a brilliant you know. documentary that could actually, you would think, is this a mockumentary? Yeah, <laughs> that'd be very interesting. What about ads for the poor old priests? I mean, the ones we listen to were for priests in America, but I think Ireland could use a few more priests. I, yeah. I know that they're they're suffering some yes. critical low levels. As How? long as they don't use Hitler on the poster. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. <laughs> And yes to electric cars. Ah, you yes. Know? Uh, but for uh, the yeah. environmental reasons. We're still plugging away at that oh, one. Sorry. 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 I'm going to say better then. Better yes. then. For, for yeah. all of the, the great things that mm-hmm. happened in this episode. Yeah. To Agreed. Us. Especially yeah. Frankie. Yeah. yeah. That's all for this week. You can listen back on the podcast or else join me for episode two of Sure It Was Better when we hear about what went wrong when Irish people ended up in a nudist resort in 80s Yugoslavia. We had a communal balcony. The first thing I saw was a lady standing naked on the, on the balcony. Where she said, uh, I think in German or something, good morning. I then went back inside and uh, had a little word with my wife. And we hear about the pearls of MTUSA. MTUSA, the RTE television video series on Sunday afternoons, constitutes soft porn. So says County Sligo priest Father Niall McDermott. 
Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>